thank you so much to know that you are with us. God, you are Emmanuel. And we can trust that all year long. And I praise and thank you for the reminder of your presence. God, I pray today that as we look at your word, you would guide us in truth. That you would help us to see what you would want us to see through this book of Joshua that we've been studying for several months now. And and God, that you would use this last sermon we have to look at your word and to look at this book and to look at what you've done in the life of Joshua and all of Israel. God, that you would change us, renew us, mold us, whatever you need to do with us today, Lord, that we would be transformed by your word. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe it was something like January 11th or January 12th that we began um, our journey through Joshua. And today, uh, it marks the day in which we are going to be finishing uh, the book of Joshua. And uh, it's kind of with mixed emotions, honestly, because I loved our journey through the book of Joshua. I think I've learned a ton more than I even expected to learn as we've gone through the book. I hope and pray that you have as well. Uh, We're going to finish it up today. We're going to do an overview of all that we've looked at. And uh, we're going to... uh, get an overview again of what we've, what's really, if you haven't picked up on this theme through the book of Joshua, the theme of courage. You know, we started very, the very first week looking at Joshua chapter 1 and we started talking about courage and all the way through this book we continue to come back to that word, courage and trusting God, trusting in Jesus, trusting in God himself is courage. That is the true way to have real courage. And so today we're going to do an overview. In just a moment, I'm going to actually start by something that is not necessarily a normal thing, and I understand that, but I think it'll go a really long way to getting us uh, reminded of what has happened so far in all 24 chapters of Joshua. And in just a moment, we're going to show a video uh, that is, uh, it's about eight minutes, so it's a little lengthy, but it, it goes through the beginning to the end of the book, and just with all the different things that happened. So you can have a reminder of what was happening as we've looked at the book of Joshua. And then we're going to come together after that video, and we're going to look at how what we just saw and how what we've read through the book of Joshua relates to courage relates to stepping out in trusting God. And we're going to do that. And then, by, and then we're going to look at the very last few verses. And actually, I want to read these before we even go to the video. Because what we're going to be looking at this morning, it's going to be Joshua chapter uh, 24, starting in verse 29. And it's the end of the book, and this is what we read. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at uh, timnath Sarah, which is in the hill of the country of Ephraim north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua had known all the work that the Lord had done for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought them from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. And it became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town in which Phinehas' his son, which had been given to him in the hill country, of Ephraim. And so the, the book ends with some funerals, some idea that people have now passed on. And uh, we'll look at that a little bit more in depth later uh, and uh, when we get to that. But right now, this is where the book ends. But before we, so this is just a, a classic ending to a historical book that tells us that all the main characters that we've been looking at now have passed on. 
So with that in background of what we're going to be talking about today, if you just take your attention right up to the screen, we're going to watch this video. Hopefully it'll give you a good recap of what's happened in Joshua. The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham and then his family became the people of Israel who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died, and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land, and then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites, and so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes, and then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in, and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins with Moses' death, and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, so here the river Jordan parts and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. Now, in chapter 5, the story transitions. So the people look back to their roots as God's covenant people, and so the new generation is circumcised and they celebrate their first Passover in the land. But then they turn and prepare to go forward. And Joshua has this crazy encounter with a mysterious warrior who, it turns out, is the angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the warrior responds, neither. Which shows that the real question here is whether Joshua is on God's side. It makes clear that this whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle, and Israel is going to play the role of spectators or sometimes supporters in God's plan, which leads to the next section. We find stories about all these conflicts that Israel had with different Canaanite groups. And the first part retells the story of two battles in detail, and that's followed by a series of short stories that condense years of battles into a few brief summaries. So the first two battles are against Jericho and then Ai, and they offer these contrasting portraits of God's faithfulness versus Israel's failure. At Jericho, Israel is to take a completely passive approach. So they let God's presence in the ark lead them around the city to music for six days. And just like Rahab turned to the God of Israel, maybe the people of Jericho would do the same, but they don't. And so on the seventh day, the priests blow the trumpets and the walls come falling down, leading Israel to victory. The point of the story is that God is the one who will deliver his people. Israel simply needs to trust and wait. 
Now the next story of the battle at Ai makes the opposite point. So there's this Israelite named Achan, and he steals from Jericho some of the devoted goods that were to belong to God alone, and then he lies about it. It's a pretty lame move after all that God has done for Israel. And so Israel goes into battle with the city of Ai, and they're totally defeated. And it's only after humble repentance and severely dealing with Achan's sin that Israel gains victory. And so together, these two stories, they're placed right up front to make an important point. If Israel is going to inherit the land, they have to be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment. Now, the second part of this section begins with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people group. And they do just what Rahab did as they turn to follow the God of Israel and they make peace with Israel. This is in contrast to all of these other Canaanite kings who start to form alliances and coalitions, and they want to destroy Israel. So Israel engages them in battle, and they win by a landslide. And so this whole section concludes with this summary list of all of these victories won by Moses and then by Joshua. Now, let's stop for a second, because odds are that these stories and the violence in them, they're going to bother you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're bound to wonder, like, Didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Why is God declaring war here? So first, why the Canaanites? The main reasons are actually given earlier in the biblical story. It's that the culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt, especially when it comes to sex. Go check out Leviticus chapter 18. And they also widely practiced child sacrifice. Go see Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so God didn't want these practices to influence Israel. The Canaanites had to go. Which raises the second question. Did God actually command the destruction of all the Canaanites like a genocide? So at first glance, you know, you look at the phrases used in these stories. They totally destroyed them. They left no survivor or anything that breathed. But when you look a second time more closely, you'll see that these phrases are clearly hyperbole and not literal. So go back to the original command about the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Israel is first told to drive out the Canaanites, but then to totally destroy them. And then that's followed by commands to not intermarry with them or enter into business deals with them. So you can't marry someone that you've destroyed. I think you get the point. The same idea applies to the stories in Joshua. Look closely. So for example, we're told in Joshua chapter 10 that Israel left no survivors in the cities of Hebron or Debir. But then later in chapter 15, we see these towns and they're still populated by Canaanites. And so what we're seeing is that Joshua fits in with other ancient battle accounts by using non-literal hyperbolic language as part of the narrative style. And so the word genocide doesn't actually fit what we see here, especially in light of the stories about the Canaanites who did turn to the God of Israel, like Rahab or the Gibeonites. God was open to those who would turn to him. The last thing to think about is that these stories mark a unique moment in Israel's history. These battles were limited to the handful of people groups living in the land of Canaan. With all other nations, Israel was commanded by God to pursue peace. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 20. So the purpose of these battle stories was never to tell you, the reader, to go commit violence in God's name. Rather, they show God bringing his justice on human evil at a unique moment in history and how he delivered Israel from being annihilated by the Canaanites. 
Now, let's go back to the book's design. After years of battles, we see an aging Joshua, and he starts dividing up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. And most of this section is like lists of boundary lines. And let's be honest, it's kind of boring. It's like reading a map that has no pictures. But for the Israelites, these lists were super important. This was the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land. And so now it was all coming to pass right down to the detail, which leads to the final section. Joshua gives two speeches to the people that are very similar to the final speeches of Moses in Deuteronomy. Joshua reminds them of God's generosity, how he brought them into the land and rescued them from the Canaanites. And so he calls them to turn away from the Canaanite gods and be faithful to the covenant they made. If they do, it will lead to life and blessing in the land. But if they're unfaithful, Israel will call down on itself the same divine judgment that the Canaanites experienced. They'll be kicked off the land into exile. And so Joshua leaves Israel with a choice. What is Israel going to do? That's the big question that looms as the story ends, and that's the book of Joshua. So like I said, I know that's not a normal thing to do on a Sunday morning, but I really hope it gave you a full picture Because we've been spending months talking about Joshua, and I don't want us to lose the overall context of what we see happening in Joshua. And many of the things that this video reminded us of were things that we have seen throughout this book. And remember, when we started this book, I said, and I still believe this to be 100% true, that this book, although named for Joshua, is not primarily about Joshua. That this book, although named for Joshua, is primarily about God. It's about what God has done and how he has worked and how he is the sovereign God and king overall. And so that's a good reminder of all the things that happened. And they did a nice little job talking about the idea of genocide there too. And I know we talked a little bit about that. And, and it does seem very barbaric uh, that they would just kill everyone. And I think there's lots of truth to the fact that um, in, this, in this book we see hyperbole. That's not saying that something is wrong. It just means they were using something to make a point. And it was made a point that God was giving. Remember, we've said this. God gave complete control over Canaan. That doesn't mean that every single Canaanite was killed, but it does mean that that Israel had total control and had the ability to continue to control Canaan if they would be faithful. All right, so with all that, we're just going to run through, and what I did is I went through every sermon that, I, that we've had since the time we started, and I'm just going to give you an idea about courage. And, and so it's in your notes. you would be ready to fill in the, the blanks. We're going to go really quickly. We're not going to read the whole book again. Uh, but in seeing what all the events that happened, now we're going to see maybe some things that we could apply from the book of Joshua. Remembering, first of all, in Joshua 1, 1 through 9, that courage is trusting in God's promises and presence through faith in his word. That this is true courage. It's trusting in God's promises and presence through faith in his word. That is what Joshua is called to, to be strong and courageous, not to be a, a, a military leader, although he would be, but ultimately to trust God's promises, and that's true courage. We saw in the second half of Joshua chapter 1 that to be courageous, to really trust God, to have that courage, it is a community effort. It's not just for one person and then the rest can kind of just sit 
behind. But uh, courage is for all the people of Israel, and specifically it's for all of us as God's children, that we can have courage by trusting in God no matter what life may bring to us, no matter what challenge might be before us. Together, we can have courage. In Joshua chapter 2, which is the, the, the chapter in which we read about Rahab harboring the spies and helping them to escape, we see courage is seen in knowledge, emotion, and in action. It was knowing God, it was having an emotional reaction to what God was doing, and it was also, and really most important, that knowledge and emotion ended in action. Rahab trusted God and she acted on her faith, so did Israel. And so we saw that courage is seen in knowledge, emotion, and action. And then there's some sub-points I put here as we look at these next few chapters. Joshua 3 says that courage is shown in obedience to God. That's an action. Courage is shown in obedience to God. That's when they cross the Jordan River. They do what God asks, even though it seemed impossible. They cross the Jordan River on dry land. And then we see courage is shown in remembrance. Joshua chapter 4. You remember after they cross the Jordan, they make a memorial to remember that God had allowed them to pass over the Jordan River into the promised land. And so part of faith is remembering what God has done. And, and, and that's what we see happening. Another part of courage, we see that it is shown physically. And we talked about this specifically, they talked about this in the video, Uh, when Israel comes together and the new generation is all circumcised to show that they are indeed committed to the Lord and committed to his covenant, and then we also see that they celebrate Passover to remember what God has done to preserve their people. And so that was a physical action that was shown, that was seen. And so courage is not only just something we have maybe within us, although it starts there, but it will be seen as we are truly courageous and truly trusting in God. On to Joshua chapter 5, the last part of Joshua chapter 5. We see this story with the commander of the army of the Lord. Uh, uh, an angel of the Lord, might quite possibly Jesus, uh, a pre-incarnation of the Son of God. Uh, and we see that the commander of the army of the Lord comes, and we see that courage is found in the presence of God. Uh, the presence of God is where courage can be found. But not only the presence of God, but also the purpose of his glory. That if we are to truly be courageous, it'll be based on the fact that God is with us, and it'll be based on the fact that we want to make him look good and glorious, because that's who he is. And so we looked at that. We then looked at how uh, the presence and purpose of God's glory worked out in a very practical way. Joshua 6 is the battle of Jericho where they march around the city and the walls come tumbling down. We see that in Joshua 6 and that God gives victory to the people. God gives victory to the people. This was not their victory to be had, but this was God's victory that he gave to them. We see in Joshua 6 and 7, uh, and when we see uh, there's uh, the idea again of Jericho being defeated, and then we see the story of Achan where he takes the things he's not meant to take, and uh, Israel stones him, and and he is punished for his sin because God has to be just. So we see that God judges sin in Canaan and in Israel, that God will judge sin even whether they're... people that are against him or even in his own people that judge the sin must be judged because God is a just God uh, we saw then uh, in chapter 8 that God restores and forgives his people after the defeated AI after they have that defeat they end up having victory after they deal with their sin because God is a God of mercy and God is a God of forgiveness so God restores and forgives his people but let's remember he does that to show his presence and he does that to show his glory 
Joshua chapter 9, uh, we see the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites come and uh, they have this big manipulation of Israel and they end up making peace with Israel. And we see through that that courage is responding to God in humility and look and mercy. That courage is responding to God in humility. We even saw that in a sense with the Gibeonites. And in the end, we saw that, you know what, they didn't do it right, but at least they had a belief in God and they wanted to have peace. And they had to come in humility. And Israel wasn't humble and they made decisions without asking God. And But then even after the Gibeonites make peace, we see that Israel shows mercy to them despite their manipulation. That, he, that courage is passed on, in a sense. That courage is seen in humility and mercy. We see that courage knows, in, in Joshua 10, uh, verse 28 verses, courage knows that God is the faithful defender of his people. Courage takes it and knows that God has got it in his hands. God is in control. God is the defender of his people. To truly trust that God has our best interest at heart because he wants what we all should want and that is ultimately his glory and his honor and we and so therefore god is the defender of his people for his glory we see defensive victories where the kings and the canaanites come against israel and there is victory given we've we see in the last part of chapter 10 through uh chapter 11 that we see god is told that we're told that god is the one who fights we simple simply must follow that God is the one who fights, we simply must follow. It's not about our human effort, but it's about his effort on our behalf. And that doesn't just stop in Joshua, but that goes throughout scripture. And eventually when Jesus even comes and we have the grace that is given of salvation, it's not through our effort, but it's through God's effort. And so God is the one who fights, we simply follow. And we also then see, and the end of chapter 11 all the way to chapter 21, we see that God fulfills his promises as the land is divvied out among all the tribes. That God comes through on the promise he made to Abraham, and when he made that promise so hundreds and hundreds of years ago, when he made that promise to Abraham, it now is coming true for the people of Israel, and God is a promise keeper. So we see that in the sense that God is the one who fights and God is the one who keeps his promises, that's how we can know, that's how courage can be had in our lives, to trust that he will fight for us, to trust in his promises. Next thing we saw as we continued on, Joshua chapter 22, we see that the eastern tribes that are living across the Jordan end up making an altar to remember uh, the, uh, the relationship between them and western Israel, and we see the, the rest of the tribes in the west come and they want to fight the eastern tribes, but what we see from that is that courage must be found in the unity of God's people. In the unity of God's people is where courage is found. And it's about good communication. It's about being with one another and, and knowing and, and really communicating back and forth. And we see that a, a crisis was averted because of unity. We see courage uh, then also in Joshua 23. As Joshua now is down to his last speeches, uh, he first of all gathers what seems to be just the leaders of the people. Maybe the other people were in the background, but at least the leaders of the people are there. And Joshua gives one of his final speeches, and he basically says to the leaders that courage must be passed on. Joshua is saying to the leaders, you must grab hold of this. I'm old, I'm about to die. Leaders, you need to take courage, trusting in God's presence and promises, and take that courage and continue it forward. Don't forget what God has done. Don't stop in our obedience to God. And that's what Joshua says to the leaders. 
And finally, last week, if you were with us, we looked at Joshua 24. And we saw the very last thing we hear from Joshua. And we see that Joshua says, Courage is a covenant of complete devotion. Not a half-hearted devotion that is still worshiping idols and yet trying to worship God at the same time. That there is to be complete devotion. And Joshua wants that to be his final words. His final words to Israel were, Devote yourself wholly, completely, absolutely to God. And don't give yourselves to other idols. Because he is the God who has given you freedom. Don't go back to slavery. And he says that to Israel. And last week we know, looking ahead, that that is not how they're going to respond. And they will walk away from God. And they will walk towards idols. But we see this sense. And so we come from courage. Very chapter 1 is trusting in God's promises and presence through faith in his word. And then all the way to the end in chapter 24, courage is a covenant of complete devotion. It's completely trusting in God's promises and presence. It's complete obedience to his word. And we're not going to attain perfection, but we can't be half-hearted. We can't divide ourselves and serve other gods and serve ourselves or serve other people or serve things in our lives more than we serve God himself. And that it's one single-mindedness, a devotion to God. And so that is, in a nutshell, what we've seen through the book of Joshua. Hopefully you've been to most of the, you know, you've been here most of the times to look at these different concepts. Courage is the theme, but courage is about our trust in God. It's not about how we can will ourselves to do anything. So that brings us to the end. The verses I read as we look at Joshua and, uh, and, uh, Eleazar and we see, uh, elders that will eventually, that will be passing away. We see that there is an end here, that Joshua dies at 110 years old. But what I want to focus on today, the main idea of as we look at these last few verses that we've already done all of our review, is how would Joshua be remembered? What would Joshua's legacy be? The book is named after him, and as I said, God is the main character, but yet Joshua here, he dies, and what, how is he known? You know, this is almost like a little bit of an obituary. And you think about when you write an obituary for someone who has passed on, you want to make sure that you make them, I mean, you just want to do justice to their life. To let people see how, how much of a good person they were. To make people see how much of a generous person or a loving person or a good family person. You want someone to look and, and, and to be, to remember them well. So how is Joshua remembered in this little obituary that's here at the end of Joshua? Well, it's very interesting. Joshua could have been remembered as a mighty warrior. He had many victories. He was in charge of many victories. So he could have been known as a mighty warrior. That could have been his last word. That could have been what people said about him. You know, he could have said, they could have said he was a great political leader. That he led the people and, and that he was politically driving them to where they needed to be. He, he could be seen as a conqueror, one who came in and took a whole land and, and, and took over this Canaanite land that he had no, no ability to do and yet did. And he could have been remembered in that way. He could have just been remembered as a great man. Those are all ways that Joshua could have been remembered. But how we see it in verse 29, and after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died, being 110 years old. It is my prayer and my hope that at the end of my life and at the end of your life, 
I don't care what my tombstone says or what my obituary says. If it says I'm a servant of God, then what we're told here is very clear. This is what Joshua lived for. He lived for God. He didn't live for himself. He didn't live to make a name for himself. He was a servant of God. He served God, and that's how he is to be remembered forever. Now, back up, because at the beginning of Joshua, we see someone else called the servant of God, and that is Moses. Once again, a guy who led Israel out of Egypt and took them out of slavery and took them into the wilderness and took them to the border of Canaan. And once again, he was called a servant of God. Not a great leader, but a servant of God. What is this supposed to show us? Well, I think it shows us what we've been saying since day one when we've been looking at Joshua. That what happens in the book of Joshua is not about Joshua, it is about God. It is about what God chose to do. It is how God moved, it is how God gave victory, and Joshua was simply there to serve. To put himself under the authority and the direction of his God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And that was his legacy, that is his obituary, if you will. So three main overarching things that I believe we see about Joshua through this book that point back to his devotion to God, the real hero of the story. But three ways that Joshua was a servant of God. And I'm not going to look at all the different references. We don't have time. But I'm just, these are general statements. I believe we see through the book of Joshua that Joshua served God by relying on him. By relying on God. There are so many times in this book where Joshua is told something that quite frankly makes no sense. Think about crossing the Jordan on dry land. And they move to the edge of the Jordan before they even know the plan, by the way. Think about Jericho. They're supposed to march around this fortified city I mean, and look like fools. And all they have to do is march and blow trumpets. And the walls are going to fall. This doesn't seem like it makes any sense at all. And Joshua could have relied on his own strength. He could have tried to rely on his army's strength. But no, he relied on God. He relied on God's promises from from chapter 1, we see that everything Joshua did was because he had full reliance, full trust in God himself. And not trusting in his own abilities or trusting in Israel's abilities, but he's always coming to God and asking for help and asking for the battle plan. He's always coming and, and receiving from God because he knows that he can't rely on himself, that the only person he can rely on in this whole world is Yahweh, God himself, the one he serves. And so, I believe that one way that we can see Joshua was a servant of God was that he relied on God constantly. He didn't rely on his own strength, but he relied on him. And I want to just say as a, as a point of just encouragement to us today, what is the point of all this? Well, if we want to end our lives being known as a servant of God, I believe these three things should be true of us. That we will rely on him and not rely on ourselves, not rely on other people, but rely on God and God alone. Trust him completely, as we talked about last week. Next thing, uh, and this kind of goes along with it, but the next thing we see is Joshua served God by obeying him. Not only did he come to God and ask for help, and not only did he receive help and, and receive help humbly, but we also see Joshua served God by obeying him. We see this all throughout the, the book. We see it even in his final speeches. Obey the word of the God. Obey his law. Uh, keep his law. Joshua says it so many times because he's doing it. Remember, he says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's an idea of serving or obeying. You see, Joshua served God by obeying him. 
When God said do something, Joshua did it. He didn't argue or question or go his own way, but he obeyed God because he knew God was in control. And so therefore, not only did he rely on God, but he obeyed him. He abandoned everything and obeyed what God told him to do. That he lived a life of obedience. That's why Joshua can be called a servant of God. And finally, Joshua served God by remembering him. And you say, well, I don't, wow, that's a different one. So we, we figure the relying one makes sense, obeying him makes sense. But remembering God, this is, this is actually probably one of the major themes throughout Joshua. There are seven, and some people would say possibly eight, depending on how many monuments we believe that were set up around the Jordan River when they crossed. But at least seven memorials are built or given throughout the land to remind Israel of God's faithfulness. If you look through the book of Joshua seven times, they some way, somehow make a monument that stays there to this day, as the word would say, to remind Israel of their covenant with God. Remembrance is a huge theme in the book of Joshua, and it makes sense. Even in his final speeches, before he tells them what to do, he tells them what God has done. Because God, or Joshua understood that to serve God is to remember him and to remember his works. And this is pretty simple if we think about it, because we won't really live for something or someone unless we remember why. And so it's important to be a servant of God that we remember what God has done and remember what God is doing and we remember who God is. Because if we forget any one of those things, if we forget what God has done in our life, if we forget who he is, if we forget that he's at work right now, then what do we have to live for? And so Joshua was a man of remembrance. Israel was a uh, people of remembrance until we get to Judges. And when the people forgot, which we'll see in just a few minutes, then everything went downhill. So my encouragement to all of us, and we'll get to the conclusion later, but is that we rely on God, we obey God, and we remember Him. That we take time to do these things if we truly want to be known as a servant of God. And that should be our heart, by the way. We shouldn't want to be known for us. One of my favorite songs that's come out recently is from Casting Crowns. Many of you have heard it. Uh, Only Jesus. And it's the idea of, like, I don't care what my life amounts to. It's only about Jesus. And see, that is, I believe that Joshua would be one that would be right alongside Casting Crowns singing that song. Because he was all about God. He was all about Yahweh, the great I Am, who Jesus declared himself to be. And so Joshua is the servant of God, and I believe we should in, in, endeavor to do the same. But we don't do that by our own strength. We do that by relying on him. We don't do that by going our own way, but we do that by obeying him. We don't do that by, by forgetting what has happened and who he is, but we do it by remembering him. And that is how we can become a servant of God. That is how Joshua became a servant of God. Now, real quick, just to say these other people here, uh, Eleazar, if you look through Deuteronomy, if you look through Numbers, he was a... He was a big character, actually, and he was the son of Aaron. He was the high priest. Uh, he was really the, a spiritual leader in Israel. And so the fact that he is mentioned here as well shows uh, that he... Uh, now we're seeing a transition. Joshua is gone. Eleazar is gone. We're actually kind of given a little bit of an idea here that the elders are even gone at this point because Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who, were out, who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord had done for Israel. So we see Joshua and those who were leading with Joshua. Uh, Joshua is the servant of God, the elders who served with him. Uh, Israel serves God as long as they're alive, but then apparently, obviously, they have passed on as well. 
The bones of Joseph, by the way, just as an aside really quickly, bones of Joseph being brought and buried, that is a fulfillment of, uh, of patriarchal promises, that Joseph would be returned to the promised land. Remember, he died in Egypt, and so he would be returned and buried with his, with his, rightfully with his family. And that's what we see happen. So God shows his faithfulness even through a simple phrase about bones being buried. God has been faithful to the people of Israel, and therefore Joshua has been a servant. The elders have now passed on. Eleazar has passed on. And the thing is, all of this, think, I, I heard it this way. Uh, basically, when a book ends with death, it's probably not a good thing. <laughs> it's probably not a good foreshadowing, but instead a bad foreshadowing. And so we see this book end with death, and indeed we'll see that that continues. So, we're done with Joshua. I want to jump ahead. We're going to be in Judges in just a few weeks. But I want to jump ahead, because uh, the, the P.S. that I have here on your notes... The death of Joshua and his contemporaries, we just talked about. Death is not a good thing, and here at the end of the book, it's not going to be a good thing. The death of Joshua and his contemporaries leads to the death of Israel's courage. It leads to the death of Israel's courage. I actually almost, instead of calling this a legacy of courage, I almost called this sermon the death of courage. Because at the end of this chapter, we actually see death is happening physically, but I believe spiritually death is happening as well. And I just want to move over to Judges real quickly, and we'll look at this again when we're going through Judges. But the book of Judges, chapter 2, verses 6 through 13. Judges 2, 6 through 13. And I want you to just pay attention to what's happening in Israel at this time. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Sounds familiar. Who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. This sounds really good at this point. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all the generation who were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Pause for a moment. What happened there? Israel forgot. Remember, a servant of the Lord remembers God, but Israel forgets God. As we continue on, verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who are around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. One generation after Joshua is gone. One generation after the elders that outlived him are gone. The people have forgotten The people are no longer obeying God, but the people are obeying other gods. And finally, the people have abandoned him. They're not relying on him anymore. The exact opposite of what we've just seen in the life of Joshua becomes true of the people of Israel. And it's so quick how things can disintegrate so fast if we don't remember to rely on God, to obey God, and to remember God. These things, if they don't happen, it will just lead to destruction just like it does for Israel. And we will look at that in much more depth as we go through the book of Judges. So then let's get to a conclusion this morning. 
We're concluding the book. We're concluding the sermon. And the first question is we ask every single week, have you courageously placed your faith in Jesus for salvation? If courage is trusting in God's promises and presence, and it's having faith in his word, his word is very clear that if you want to experience God's promise of eternal life and experience the presence that he offers now and forever to have a relationship with God, that we need to courageously place our faith. We need to believe in Jesus. Jesus came. We're told in the New Testament, Jesus comes. As we looked at last week, he brings a new covenant by sacrificing himself, giving his own life, shedding his own blood because we have sinned and we deserve punishment. We deserve eternal death. We deserve to be separated from God forever. But Jesus came as God himself came into the, the, the tent of human flesh. He gave his life on the cross. He shed his blood. He died so that he could pay the punishment for your sin and for my sin so that the, the wrath of God could be appeased in the body and in the death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus died for us. And Jesus rose again to say sin and death no longer has any power and that what I did was really worth it. It can pay for sin. And Jesus rises again. He continues to teach his people and he goes to heaven and he waits on us and will one day be coming back. And our call then, if we want to experience a relationship with him, experience his promises and presence and have faith in his word, his word tells us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. To believe in what he's done, to believe in who he is, to give our lives for his sake. As he gave himself for us, we give ourselves back. And we do that through faith. We do that through trusting in him. And when we trust in his promise, that is courage. And we start trusting in him instead of trusting in ourselves. That's repentance. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't have a relationship with him. Today is the day to have courage in trusting him for everything, for your life, for your eternal life. Trust in Jesus. That is my plea to you today. And if you need to know more, ask anyone you know who knows Jesus. They will share that with you. And then the question for all of us today is, what is our legacy going to be in a sense? Is our legacy one of courage as a servant of God? Is our legacy one of courage as a servant of God? Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I want to read as we think about this point. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 23. Do we want to be known as a servant of God? Well, Paul did. Paul wants us to be. Verse 16 of chapter 6 in Romans. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit you were getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have been slaves and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads salvation or leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
the calling of our lives as Christians is to not be a slave or a servant of this world or of sin, but to be a slave or a servant of God. Joshua's final words that were told of him was that he was a servant of God. And as Christians, if we come to know Jesus, then this is how we should be known. We are the slaves of God and we should live like it. Submit to our king, submit to our master. We need to live like the slaves of God that we are. And that makes sounds so negative. But let's just keep in mind, a slave master is one who protects. A slave master is one who loves. A slave master is one who is here for us. That God is the perfect one, and he is the one that we serve. And that is not, it will not be drudgery, but it will be life. It will be joy. It will be peace. It will be what he has promised if we will simply serve him. Jesus has set us free to be servants of him. But he wants us to make sure, earlier on in verses 14 and 15, Paul wants us to make sure we understand this. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Yes, Jesus has died so that we can become a slave to God, and that means that our life should be marked not by sin, but by the exact opposite, by obedience. That should be what our lives are marked by. And so as we finish Joshua, my question to all of us is this. Do we truly have courage that God has asked us to have? Will we be known and are we known as a servant of God in the sense that we have relied on him, obeyed him, and remembered him above all else? And if that is not where our lives are at, it's not too late. There's repentance. There's a returning to Jesus and saying, help me. Help me to be the slave, the servant that you want me to be. This is the calling that we have as Christians. Will we obey? That is the question I will leave you with as we finish Joshua. Will we be courageous? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this book. Thank you for this study, the time you've given us to look at your, your servant, Joshua. Lord, I pray that it's the call of all of our hearts to truly want to be a servant of yours, not a servant of ourselves, not a servant of sin, not a servant of someone else, not a servant, a servant of our things, but Lord, a servant of you and you alone. God, I pray you'd work in our hearts and our minds, help us to know what is most important in life. And God, not that we're going to achieve perfection, we understand that we are still feeble humans, but God, we know that through your help, through your direction, through your wisdom, if we rely on you and if we trust you, we obey you and we remember you, Lord, that you will continue to guide us to be the courageous people that you've called us to be. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a congregation. I pray for myself individually. I pray for everyone here. God, help us to truly have courage and be a servant of yours no matter what the world says. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.